This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We're continuing to try new things here on the show. There are lots of pressing issues that are impacting people with disabilities and lots of perspectives to share. So let's talk about housing. If you are a regular viewer of the program or listener of the podcast, you know it's one of my favorite issues to discuss, probably because it's one of the most important things that exists. If you don't give people a roof over their head, it's pretty tough to build an effective society. So to help us through this journey are some familiar contributors to the show. You know Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller. So first we say good morning to Marco out there in British Columbia. Hello, Marco. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Elizabeth, out here in southern Ontario with us. Good morning, Dave. Nice to be with you this morning. So I sent you guys an article about accessible housing waiting lists in British Columbia that was posted by the CBC. According to the BC Housing Registry, nearly 4,000 people living with disabilities are on a wait list to find an accessible home. And an additional 1,087 applicants require wheelchair-modified units. I'd say these numbers are largely unsurprising. But Marco, what's your reaction to this story? Yeah, well, first and foremost, when I used to sit on the advisory design panel for the city of Surrey, we'd meet with a lot of developers locally. And it was funny because as the advisor for accessibility on that panel, we'd always get the uh, perplexed look from these uh, uh, designers or developers when they were in our meetings because I would say, well, we would love to have at least a minimum of 5% adaptable units. And they say, well, there's nothing really in the code that says that. I'm like, well, here's the thing. Adaptable units doesn't necessarily mean they have to be accessible. It just means that they're available to be adapted if somebody requires additional uh, changes that need to be done. And uh, it just seems like for developers, there's a lot of resistance there because they think that that's going to change the overall function, design, or even the sellability of some of their units. So that doesn't surprise me whatsoever, Dave. Mm. I do want to talk about code in a couple minutes here, but Elizabeth, I want to give you the same opportunity to react to the news story that I shared with you guys. The numbers don't surprise me. And and when I was reflecting on Toronto and looking at our city, there are 80,000 individuals currently who have an application in for subsidized housing that are waiting. And that number is staggering and it's, it's going to grow. And you can actually see by quarter it's broken down. And what makes me, what really concerns me is we know, like you've said, the importance of housing, but we also know that if individuals are housed, they stay out of hospital, they stay out of long-term care, they stay out of the shelter system. And the concerning thing here is we have an aging population. We're all getting older. And so mm-hmm. if we think about the need for accessible and affordable housing, it's, it's only going to continue. We know that folks over age 75, 47% of individuals over age 75 live with some kind of a disability. And so I think a, a couple of reflections came to my mind as, as I was reading those numbers. What can we do as as a society to encourage developers? Is there tax incentives? And what can we do to be sure that housing is affordable and accessible and really looking at 
what are the things we need to consider? I mean, 15%, only 15% with the Ontario Building Code, 15% of homes need to be made visitable. And that's mm. not even close to accessible. Yeah, that, mm, good that, point. Yeah, that's something we've explored quite a bit with uh, Thea Curdy of Designable Environments yes. uh, over the yes. years, talking about some of those numbers and some of those sort of institutionalized laws that we need to look at. I, Elizabeth, you mentioned cost, so I want to stay with you for one more moment here. How much do you think it is that overall cost ends up impacting the way we're perceiving uh, this overall shortage in the sense that all housing is so expensive? And then when we're talking about what would be more accessible or universally designed housing, typically that tends to be newer builds, which are even more expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's interesting, right? Because when we think about building something from the start, it's actually not more expensive to build something mm. that's accessible. Mm. What gets expensive is when we have to retrofit. Um, and so I think, and I think Marco touched on this, there's this sort of concern that if we build it accessible from the start, it, it won't be as desirable or it won't sell as well. But actually, that's not what the statistics are telling us about our, our population. Mm. And, and, you know, j just in terms of affordability, you know, in, in Ontario, the shelter cost that people on social assistance are given is $497 and ODSP is $1179 and it's pretty difficult to find an apartment for under $1179 in Toronto and if you do, you don't have much left over. Elizabeth, I'm, I'm glad you corrected me there because I definitely phrased that question poorly. But Marco, I want to give you the same opportunity because obviously we're here in Southern Ontario. You're out there in BC. These are the two most expensive markets in the country, arguably two of the right. most expensive markets on the continent. How much does overall affordability, do you think, cascading into lack of supply? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a major, major issue. I think that uh, uh, the housing market here in Vancouver is actually one of the most expensive in the world. It's been massively inflated. Um, you know, a lot of this has to do with uh, general, the idea that generally we're they're trying to pack a lot of us in into the condominium style units. Um, there's less and less residential homes. Um, and then, of course, you know, based on the median income that's in the area, based on the type of work that's available. So, you know, it's, it's a trickle effect. It's going to ripple and 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 affect every single person in the city. Um, I know that I have friends that have been waiting on that wait list uh, that you mentioned at the top of the show uh, for years now, and they still don't necessarily know when they're going to get that phone call or if they're going to get that phone call. So it does have to be affordable. Uh, I agree. Uh, I haven't been on PWD supports for years, but I know that there's no way that I could afford a place uh, in the general Vancouver region at all um, on the amount of money that's given uh, for people who require PWD support. So we do need to make a change. And there, I, I do have some ideas later on uh, in some of your questions on how we can kind of re resolve that. Oh, we'll open up Dave Brown Consulting in a second here. But Marco, I want to <laughs> stay with you because you because you did mention that you've sat on some of these boards. Did we miss an, a huge opportunity? It really feels like in the last 15 years in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, there's been such an investment yeah. in density and new builds. Did we miss an opportunity to incorporate more universal and accessible design right there from the jump as all these new buildings were going up? 
Oh, 100%. Uh, I think uh, Elizabeth nailed it on the head, uh, you know, when, when she said, uh, essentially, you know, that idea that these adaptable or accessible units are unattractive, um, it's not true. A and, uh, you know, we're only going to get older, as she mentioned, right? So, um, you know, with the seniors population, you may not identify with having a disability today, but our needs adapt and change over time. And so if you build universally, it means that it's going to make sense for somebody today who has particular needs. Needs, but it also means that 10 years from now, it's also going to be accessible, read, ready, and universally designed for somebody who doesn't even know that they need it yet. And so by being able to build our cities with these types of thoughts in mind, it actually impacts everyone, regardless of what their needs are today. So I think that more and more developers should be focused on that because they're going to be able to make money in the long term over time. Elizabeth, there's no doubting that Downtown Toronto is a game of cones on even the best days, and a lot of oh, those I cones. Got, I got that, Dave. Instead of Game of Thrones, Game yeah, of Cones. Yeah, we do that. I, we, I'm with you. We do that from time to time. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm curious if you have a thought on the overall missed opportunity that perhaps the last 15 years presented. I mean, obviously, we're talking about decades and decades and decades of missed opportunity, but it really feels like in the last 15 years there was something there. Yeah, I mean, we had a federal election in 2019 here in Ontario. We had an election in 2022. And we keep hearing about promises for affordable and accessible housing, but we have really yet to see that come through. And I think in terms of missed opportunities, it's it's sort of this dichotomy, right? We have all of these people that are unhoused and we have all of this space and development that's going up. And not to get too much into the Dave Brown consulting, but you know, really try to think about ways that, you know, can we subsidize housing and put people together who maybe need support and people that are able to give support in co-op styles and what would that look like? So I think the problem is we're not looking to other countries. We're not looking to see what are they doing well in other countries, whether it's the Scandinavian countries and thinking about how can we support people to age in place and what would that look like? Elizabeth, I'm going to stay with you here because I know you want to talk a little bit about this, the student side of housing here. Uh, you've walked us through your experience as a student with some of your interactions with colleagues at school. What do they have to say about housing affordability and how it impacts their decisions in regards to academia or student life? So a number of my colleagues have not been able to move to campus or close to campus. So they may be commuting for upwards of an hour to get to class. And we know that that impacts mental health, physical health. It leaves less time for your studies, which in turn impacts your grades. We're also hearing a lot of issues around the safety of student rentals. So students who perhaps are new to Canada or who've never rented before are in situations that are quite precarious. So they may be asked for deposits up front by landlords or they're being asked for information that's not part of a, a lease or a tenant agreement. Also overcrowded housing, housing that's poorly repaired. And then we think about residents and the accessibility of residents. There are very few accessible residence rooms on campus and those that are there go to first year students. But what about second, third and fourth year and graduate students? Often it's a, a lottery or a wait list. And, and quite oftentimes too, folks have to move out in the summer. So again, you're bouncing around trying to find homes. We know that for, for youth with, with disabilities, eight, eight 
you know, ages 15 to 24, the most prevalent disability is mental health. And we think about how that's compounded by not having a safe place to live if you're a student. So, you know, I, I think there's a twofold problem here. I think our campuses need to do more to have accessible residence rooms and supports in residence for folks with disabilities. But I also think certainly more needs to be done around supporting uh, landlords to be aware of how to rent to students in a way that that's ethical and in a way that's safe because we hear a lot of issues with folks not getting um, safe and affordable housing as students. Marco, there are no shortage of universities and colleges in your neck of the woods, UBC, BCIT, Simon Fraser. Do you have a thought on how housing costs are impacting the way students may be experiencing your city? Yeah, I completely echo everything that Elizabeth just said as far as, um, you know, the commute, uh, the the having to live go or go back home with the parents. But I want to touch on something else, the student life. Um, you know, if they're not able to live on campus, how is that impacting their personal and social relationships? Uh, you know, we, we touched on mental health, but I really think that the social connectivity is a really important thing, particularly for those with disabilities. Um, you know, because of your disability, you may have other factors in terms of your ability to make social connections. And we've already seen the impacts that, um, you know, isolation can have over the past two to three years here. So now compound that in an environmental and academic learning situation, um, it's going to, you know, experience, uh, have a different experience with these students in a completely different way. And it's going to impact the way that they see themselves and the people around them. So I would definitely say that um, for students in this area, uh, I would say that they're probably going through that. I myself, I'm not a student anymore, but I was at one point. Point. And uh, I didn't live on uh, residency when I uh, was in uh, school simply because it was cheaper for me to stay with my parents. But mm. I mean, now that was, I mean, we're talking uh, over 12, uh, 13 years ago. So, I mean, now it's even more impacted, especially with the cost just keep going up, especially in Vancouver. Yeah, there, there's no doubt to me that making sure the student experience and student housing is more representative and inclusive is really important. And I don't mean to imply there's some kind of silver bullet or like linear connection between, oh, go do post-secondary and you're going to be a success in life. But there is some evidence that suggests you are going to have more opportunities with more education. So if we're excluding people with disabilities right from the start on that point, right from the drop of being able to even get to a school or reside near a school, that is seriously limiting opportunities and perhaps only further perpetuating some cycles of poverty that we're already seeing. So I think it's a really important aspect to grasp at this. So here's where I just wanted Please, to really Elizabeth. quickly jump yeah. in and say that in Ontario, there are only a handful of schools, York, Seneca and Carleton, that provide attendant care services in residence. So that excludes a lot of folks with mm. physical disabilities that may want to live in residence but can't because they don't have the support. So I think that's a really important point I wanted to flag as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's a hugely important point. And because the issue is so important, I know uh, both of you have your own actual jobs where you work in consulting, but I'm making you a member of my company for a moment, mm, Dave okay. Brown Consulting. Elizabeth, starting with you, what would you try and do to alleviate the housing cost issue? So I kind of touched on it. I gave a little bit of a teaser, but we, we all know aging in place is the goal, but we all know folks need more help as they age or folks with disabilities that may need help. 
So what about looking at co-op styles where people who are able to afford can move in, who have a, a disability or who are older and maybe need some help, and then people who maybe need a bit of a subsidy move in with the idea that they're going to help. So help might mean things around the co-op, like gardening and keeping the co-op maintenance up to speed, but it also might mean helping individual tenants. It sounds a lot, uh, probably there's a, there's a lot of complications to that, but I, I feel like we have these two populations and if we can bring people together in a way that's meaningful into community, that would be a great start. And then I also kind of think about, okay, what if in every condo building there was X number of subsidized buildings? And if a couple of folks with disabilities who perhaps needed attendant care services moved in there, we've seen this work before in pilot projects, then again, people aren't having to go so far afield for, for personal care and attendants perhaps can live in the building as a, as a subsidized rate as well. I think that's a really good idea because it speaks to the holistic nature of this. Um, I would like to see if governments are going to be throwing the weight of their money behind this, which a lot of them claim to be doing. I would actually prefer to see a large investment in high-quality rental property. I think the notion of, of strictly saying home ownership is the only way to solve the housing crisis is not the right way to do things. I think high-quality rental housing built near public transit that is built accessibly with universal design in mind, I think is something that can be significant. Now that's going to be a massive, massive investment. We would probably need hundreds of thousands of units across the country. But I think if the government is going to be pouring tax dollars money into this, which they are doing anyway, it should be about sustainable long-term solutions and maybe creating crown corporations where rent is tied to inflation or tied or somewhat tied to inflation as a way to, uh, to sort of ease some of these burdens. Marco, what about you? I know uh, you said you've got a couple ideas here to toss out as well. Yeah. So as an accessibility consultant, I'd be remiss to say that I think that all developments going forward through uh, municipalities and around the world should have a requirement of having an accessibility consultant on the team from the jump. Um, this way, uh, we're ensuring that the needs of persons with disabilities and the ideas and perspectives of universal design are incorporated from the get-go. Things like making sure that those adaptable units are actually assigned, uh, if possible, to people who need them, um, or at the very least, uh, you know, there's opportunity and flexibility to do that in the future. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is the idea of um, approval of modular home builds. Um, modular homes aren't actually approved to be built in all major cities. Um, uh, there's like code and, and regulations around that. Um, I think that that should be really re-looked re at. And uh, because modular homes can be built uh, to spec, um, they can be built uh, at a fraction of the time of your classic stick-built home, uh, within about five months from uh, blueprint uh, to finished product, you can have a home built up. And those uh, modular homes are often wider rancher style. They can be one level unit for people with mobility challenges. And I'm not saying necessarily to be a home owner, but the owner of that unit could then have the, that unit be rented out if need be. Um, because modular homes, uh, I think, are kind of the way of the future. I know that we're densifying our communities, we're densifying our cities with you know, uh, you know, know, tall, tall buildings and skyscrapers and things of this nature. But there has to be a way that we can look at the size of our country 
country. I mean, we have a massive country here in Canada. We have a lot of space, and there is no excuse as to why we can't look at the way things have been done. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned earlier, looking at Scandinavian countries and other ways in which they're doing things around the world. There's a lot of wins there. So for me, uh, my huge win would be, uh, as I said, in modular homes and, and getting those professionals onto the teams from the get-go. Marco, Elizabeth, this is just the first of many that we'll do. We'll be doing this once a month with one another. Thank you both for engaging in this experiment with me. Elizabeth, have a great day. Thank you for having me, Dave. And Marco, you have a great day as well. Thanks, Dave. That's Elizabeth Moeller and Marco Pasqua. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.